This morning we're studying the Gospel of Matthew, as most of you know. You can navigate your way over to Matthew chapter four. Our text is verses one through 11. Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11. The topic, the devil fights Jesus in the Judean wilderness and is soundly defeated. The title of our message, I fought the Lord and the Lord won. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, I pray that this morning we would, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, just get a lot out of this passage. That we would see it in a, in a new light, not, not necessarily new doctrinally, but new perspective, Lord, that would give us an even greater uh, excitement about your victory over Satan in the wilderness. And that we would leave this place feeling victorious because we are. Guide and direct our thoughts, Lord, and all of our comments and everything we hear as we open up our heart to you. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. It's called single combat. It's a duel between two single warriors which takes place in the context of a greater battle between two armies. Often it is champion warfare with the two combatants considered the champions of their respective sides. Typically, it will take place in a no-man's land between the opposing armies with the other warriors watching and themselves refraining from fighting until one of the two single combatants has clearly won. A biblical example, probably the biblical example that you're thinking of this morning is David versus Goliath, classic single combat. Goliath comes out, challenges the champion of Israel. David comes forth as the champion of Israel. The two armies watch. David slays Goliath, and then the Israelites rout the Philistines. A literary example would be Achilles versus Hector in the Iliad, their famous battle in the midst of that Greek tragedy. My favorite single combat, Captain Kirk versus the Gorn in Arena, the uh, original Star Trek episode. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Wow, thank you. I just posted it, uh, a little video on my Facebook, but you just, look, Kirk versus Gorn, it's just classic. I've always wondered how a slow-moving, lizard-like creature with no opposable thumb could make a starship, but uh, that's neither here nor there, it's a classic. The greatest, the most significant single combat in all history, in all the universe, Jesus versus Satan out in the wilderness. Now, it's most often referred to as the temptation of Jesus by the devil, and while that's certainly accurate, I think it waters down the understanding that this was spiritual combat. The devil tempted Jesus. That was his strategy. That was his weaponry. That's what he brings to the table. But God the Holy Spirit drove Jesus out into the no man's land of the desert in order to take the fight to Satan. Immediately after this encounter in which Jesus is victorious, he will begin to announce the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He'll go about destroying the works of the devil. He'll cast out demons. He'll heal all manner of disease and illness that is attributed to Satan, and he sets free those held captive by the devil. And so the Lord declares war on the kingdom of darkness. Make no mistake, this is combat on a cosmic level for the souls of men. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your king took the fight to the God of this world. Number two, your king put to flight 
the God of this world. Let's see Jesus taking the fight to the devil in the first 10 verses. Now in his gospel, the apostle John three times records Jesus as calling Satan the prince of this world. He is elsewhere called the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. John goes on to say that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus once referred to his fight with Satan as binding the strong man. There's a very clear, a very obvious warfare motif to the ministry of Jesus. The whole idea of preaching the kingdom of heaven reminds us that the kingdoms of this world are under the influence of the devil and that men are held captive by him. Jesus comes into a rival kingdom and says the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he begins to spread that kingdom wherever he goes. In the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the devil is described as making war with the saints of God. There's even warfare in heaven, chapter 12, as Michael the archangel fights against the devil and his demons and he throws Satan out of heaven once and for all. The Apostle Paul described our salvation by saying that Jesus, and I quote from Colossians 1.13, rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. When Jesus announced the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it was an assault against the rule of the devil on this earth. Make no mistake, what we call the temptation of Jesus was an impressive single combat between two champions, the champions of the kingdom of heaven and the champion of the kingdom of darkness. And so verse one says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Chapter three ended with God the Father attesting from heaven that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, the long-awaited Messiah and King of Israel. The Holy Spirit alighted upon Jesus in the form of a dove to anoint and empower him for his ministry. His first order of business, single combat with the devil out in a no man's land, one-on-one, -on -one, mano e diabolos, we would say. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, you got to love the Rocky franchise of movies, at least for the training sequences, if for nothing else. Whether he was hitting slabs of beef in a deep freezer or lifting logs out in the Siberian wilderness, Rocky was going to be at his physical best for those fights. Jesus was going to be at his physical worst for his encounter with the devil. I'm sure you've heard it said that 40 days is about the limit the human body can go fasting. And that once you begin to feel hunger again around 40 days, you'd better eat or your body's going to eat you. You're gonna die if you don't eat at that point. And Jesus was at that point. He was at the end of his physical resources. We might see this as a weakness, giving the devil an advantage. In fact, it was part of Jesus' arsenal of weaponry. Satan was not ready for prayer and fasting and voluntary physical weakness so that God could reveal his spiritual strength. These were things that were unheard of to him. Later on in the Gospels, there's an episode where Jesus' disciples cannot cast a demon out of a demon-possessed boy. And after Jesus does, he says, guys, this comes out only by prayer and fasting. Jesus indicating that there are weapons to this warfare when encountering demons. Prayer, fasting, physical weakness, 
This gave Jesus the advantage. Now, two things stand out about Jesus fasting, at least two things, there's more, but two that I'm looking at this morning. First, you're put on notice immediately that the warfare Jesus is going to wage to defeat Satan in the wilderness and throughout his ministry is different than anything we would ever imagine. His weapons are never carnal, they're not the natural things of this world, they are spiritual, but they are victorious, they pull down the strongholds of the enemy. The second thing that his fasting, especially his being hungry, announces to us is that Jesus would be fighting Satan as a man and not as God. Now, Jesus on the earth, he was the God-man, he was fully God and fully human at all times. Fully God, fully human in a way that we can never comprehend. But he laid aside the prerogatives of his deity and he never used his deity while he was on the earth. He humbled himself and he walked as a man, born of the spirit, filled with the spirit, and baptized with the Holy Spirit as the ultimate example for us of what it means to be a man. Now I wonder what or who Satan expected to show up in the wilderness. This idea of God becoming a man was new to angels and demons too. No one really knew what to expect from a God-man, from Jesus Christ. I wonder too if Satan thought that it would be relatively easy once he saw Jesus. After all, the last time anything even remotely similar took place was in the Garden of Eden. There Satan found it absolutely easy to tempt Eve to disobey God and Adam to sin and forfeit the rights to the kingdoms of the world over to him. It was like child's play if you read the account in Genesis. There was no resistance whatsoever. At one point, the text says, after Eve ate, she handed it to Adam and he ate. There's there's no argument at all. Adam was in a perfect environment in an absolutely perfect body like mine. Sometimes I can't resist. Jesus was in a body... that was suffering the ravages of hunger on the very brink, really, of death, perhaps, out in a barren wilderness. As to the choice of venue and physical condition of his opponent, we would give the advantage to the devil. If you were laying odds on this in Las Vegas, you'd give the devil, it'd be, you know, a million to one shot that, that Jesus would be able to defeat the devil in that environment, in those conditions. Now, the other gospels indicate, too, that Satan tempted Jesus throughout the 40 days, but came at him now in this one great final moment at his weakest. Verse three, now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Satan is here called the tempter. Think of it like a descriptive nickname, like the one we give to wrestlers or boxers or ultimate fighters. He was and he is a master at temptation, at soliciting you to disobey God and, listen, to think you're actually doing something good. That's, that's part, we don't often think about that. We, we think of Satan as the tempter and we, we see things that are absolutely sinful and we think, well, that's sin. That's, you know, it's obvious he's tempting me to sin. But when Satan is at his best, at his worst, we would say, 
He gets you to think that what he's tempting you to do in disobeying God is actually something good. Remember when Satan tempted Eve to disobey God? He got her and Adam thinking the forbidden fruit was good, even though God had explained there would be terrifying consequences should they eat it. Eve looked at it and she said it was good. Satan is the tempter. Don't be fooled, don't fool yourself when something seems good if it is obviously contrary to God's word or to his will. It's a temptation with terrifying consequences because you end up thinking you're in God's will when you're clearly out of it. Let me just be frank. If you're in a situation where you are violating the word of God, the, there's you know clearly... You're looking at the word of God. It says one thing and you're doing another. It doesn't matter how good you feel about it or how happy you think you are in it. The the devil has tempted you to sin in a way that has blinded you. Thank God for his word that we can have it as a standard. And guys, there are just a lot of Christians today who are doing what is wrong and saying that it is good. I, a, there's a lot of people I know, sadly. You confront, you think, wow, they're, they're doing this. All I need to do is read them this verse of scripture. It's very clear. And they say, yeah, we see that, but it's good for me. And God wants me to be happy and I'm gonna continue in it no matter what. Should be terrifying. How do you handle a hungry man? Well, if he's the unique God man, you tempt him to turn stones into bread. Now that sounded like a good thing. There was even a tradition among the Jews that the Messiah would reproduce the miracle of the manna in the wilderness. What better way to kill two birds with one stone? (laughs) I'm hot today. Anyway, (laughs) that's lame. The devil is so good at temptation. That's why he's called the tempter. He makes disobedience to God seem like a good thing. He answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. A memory verse from Sabbath school was all Jesus needed to overcome the devil's initial salvo. No miraculous powers, just the same word of God that is available to you and I. In fact, Jesus, in one very real sense, he had less of the word of God than we do. He's in Deuteronomy the whole time. When's the last time I was in Deuteronomy? It's been a while. And so Jesus just quoting from Deuteronomy. And throughout this fight, the Lord will use nothing other than the word of God. Nothing. Don't forget, though, that the word is called the sword of the spirit. And so remember, this is a combat. The devil comes with his temptation worked before, ruined mankind, brought all the sin and suffering that you saw for thousands of years up until the time of Christ. And Jesus comes and he unsheaths the sword of the spirit, the word of God, and the battle is on. We can be too quick to suggest that God's word is insufficient, that we need further help. Now, I'm not saying there won't be an ongoing struggle or or that you know, you become a Christian or after you've walked with the Lord that you don't struggle with things anymore. That's just not true. But I am saying that in the end, the spirit-empowered word of God is what will gain us victory over temptation and sin and not things that we add to the word of God, not the word and the will and the works of men. And so stick with God's word. Satan tempted Jesus physically and it led to what we would call an infirmity. 
An infirmity isn't a sin, it's a temporary weakness that requires some strengthening. In this case, Jesus was temporarily weakened by fasting and he would need food to be strengthened. In Hebrews verse four, or chapter four, verse 15, it says, we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our infirmities, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember, Jesus acting as a man, born of, filled with, and baptized by the Holy Spirit, was empowered to keep his physical appetites under the control of the Spirit. Here he was, on, you know, 40 days of fasting, hungry, on the verge of physical collapse, if he doesn't eat soon, the devil tempts him to eat. And Jesus says, I still won't eat unless God tells me to. I am master over my physical appetites because I've given them over to the control of the Holy Spirit. And it should encourage us. Because we, I think we have a latent idea that there comes a point in our temptation that we just can't take it anymore. Do you ever feel that? Do you ever give in to sin like that? I have. You think, well, that's it. I can't take it anymore. I did. I resisted all I could, Lord. And the Lord would say, no, I, I feel your infirmities. I resisted really to the point of death. I was willing to die in the wilderness if God hadn't told me to eat again. So I know what you're going through. And it, doesn't that give you courage? Doesn't that hearten you? Doesn't, isn't it nice to know that you can, with the help of Jesus Christ, overcome physical temptation, the lusts of the flesh, and those kinds of things? It should. Now, don't underestimate the devil. He's able to adapt. Seeing that Jesus, as a man, is going to let the spiritual part of him control the physical part, Satan decides to tempt Jesus spiritually. Verse five, then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Scholars debate about whether the devil actually transported Jesus or if this was just some sort of a vision. I'm thinking Jesus was really there on the pinnacle, otherwise the temptation kind of loses its force. I mean, virtual reality doesn't get it, you know? I mean, he's up on the pinnacle of the temple. There's another Jewish tradition. This one says that the Messiah would appear suddenly on the pinnacle of the temple. So the devil, he's, he, he's really trying to play into these weaknesses to get Jesus to reveal himself and to sin. Now, while we're looking at Jesus on the pinnacle, doesn't it freak you out just a little bit that God the Father would permit Satan to transport Jesus in such a manner? I mean, they're fighting in the wilderness. This is their arena of combat, and the next thing Jesus knows, he's standing on the pinnacle of the temple. I don't know about Jesus, but I'm afraid of heights. Maybe if you're the God man from heaven, you're not afraid of heights, but as a man, I'd be afraid of, and, but, and the truth is, God does give permissions in your life that you don't like and that you won't ever understand this side of heaven, and we just need to let God be God and realize that all things work together for the good to them that love the Lord and the called according to his purposes. You have to be careful saying, oh, God would never do this. Well, no, God wouldn't do it, but sometimes he allows things to happen. Bad things happen to good people and to God's people. Things that we wouldn't allow. But then we're not God and we don't know the final result. There's a mystery to our suffering that we don't understand. Verse six, he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. 
This is the second time Satan began by saying, if you are the son of God. It should be translated, since you are the son of God. Satan was not disputing Jesus' identity. He knew who Jesus was. He just didn't know what to make of him. He'd never faced an opponent like this before. The devil thought he was calling Jesus' bluff. If Jesus trusted God so much to care for him spiritually, if he cared not for physical things at all, then jump, trusting that God would save him. After all, hadn't God said that he would do things just like that? That seemed to be the point of the scripture insofar as Satan quoted it. Now, don't overlook the fact that Satan knows the Bible. He's been studying it for thousands of years. He's quite a theologian. You know, sometimes people say, oh, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. He can by misquoting it and by misdirection. And so we need to be careful that we're studying the whole counsel of the word of God in its context. And Satan omitted part of a verse that says to keep you in all your ways. Thus, it becomes a text out of its context. God never promised he would rescue you from doing stupid, presumptuous things. If I went up on top of our tower right now and jumped off, I would splat on the ground and you would be having a pulpit search for the next pastor and you'd think, what an idiot. Because that would be presumptuous. Uh, Now, if I find myself on a missions trip that God has ordained and I'm in a taxi cab accident or in a plane that's about to crash or in a bonka boat that's sinking, all of which are things that have happened, I'm pretty confident God's gonna take care of me in some way because I'm there where he wants me to be and that's the idea of these scriptures. Texts taken out of their context are lethal weapons against you and so be careful. Verse seven, Jesus said to him, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus didn't simply point out the misuse. He quoted a verse that showed why the misuse was so sinister. He would be tempting God. Satan was saying to him, you trust God so much, then jump. Jesus responded, I trust God so much that I won't jump. If you have to prove God, then you really don't trust him, do you? We like to say that trust is earned, and maybe that's true on a human level. You, if you're a parent and you, know, you go into your child's room and you go through their things and you find things that you don't like to find, they always say the same thing, you don't trust me. And then you always say the same thing, trust is earned, son or daughter. That's on a human level. God doesn't need to earn our trust because he's God. And so whatever situation we're in, we just trust God. We think, okay, God, uh, I, don't, I trust you. Whatever's gonna happen here is gonna happen here. I just need to make sure I'm walking with you and filled with your spirit. Now, sometimes in a fight, you go for broke. You know you're losing badly. You try to land that one last haymaker. You've seen all the boxing movies. You've gotta go out there and knock him out. You're behind on points. You've lost 14 rounds. If you don't knock him out now, it's all over. Desperate and on the ropes, the devil goes for it here in his last temptation. He says, verse eight, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Obviously, there's no peak from which you can observe the history of the world and all of its kingdoms. I think Jesus was literally transported to an exceedingly high mountain, but in this case, he was then shown a vision of all the kingdoms of this world, which it has produced, at least from the fall of man to that time, 
maybe even beyond that time. They do have a certain earthly glory, do they not? We look back and we marvel at them, at their extent, at their achievements. We talk about the wonders of the world, the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Hanging Gardens in Babylon, tourist stuff like that. Did you ever consider that some of those achievements might be satanic in their origin? When Satan is called prince by Jesus in John's gospel, the Greek word is archon, which means the highest official in a region. He was active in every successive kingdom of man. I guess what I'm saying is that, for example, maybe the mystery of how the pyramids got built is that Satan helped engineer them. He's pretty smart. And some of this stuff we still can't figure out, but it would be nothing for the prince of the power of the air to inspire these godless uh, men uh, to do things that are a mystery to us. Verse nine, and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. I think it's profound that Jesus does not dispute Satan's right to offer the kingdoms of the world to him. Satan was certainly not the rightful king, but he had the rights to the kingdoms because of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Adam forfeited mankind's stewardship over the earth. He literally handed it to the devil. Blinded by his own sin of pride, Satan thinks that the kingdom of heaven is just another in a long succession of failed kingdoms, but maybe this one will work. He thinks Jesus wants to establish another earthly kingdom. In Satan's warped perspective, it's just another way to rule over lost, hell-doomed men and women. He cannot begin to fathom that the kingdom of heaven is the righteous rule of God among men whom he loves and who love him in return. Satan cannot envision submission and service to God as the highest and greatest purpose for a created being who has exercised their free will to yield to God rather than to rebel against him. His last punch, as it were, thus misses the mark totally. He doesn't understand what the kingdom of heaven is at all. Jesus hadn't come to establish a kingdom over men whom he could subdue by his omnipotence and rule as a dictator. He came to redeem them, to reconcile them to God so that we could live forever with God in a relationship of love. He came to save them. He came to save us. He came to save you. He came to save me, not to subjugate me. Think of the succession of worldly kingdoms. What kingdom of men Influenced by Satan, do you think was the best one or would you have liked to live in? They were all corrupt and corrupting. They all fell in upon themselves in immorality and injustice. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Worship is reserved for God. Worshiping him voluntarily is the highest purpose for men and angels. Anything else is ugly, it's evil, it's limiting, it's destructive. Satan thought he could bribe Jesus to worship him, that worship was about what you can get. Do we worship God because of his gifts or because he is God and worthy regardless of what he gives or what he withholds? It was over at this point. Jesus had won. The devil's pride had been exposed. Jesus, as a man, not as God, could command the devil to flee from him. 
Jesus chose to let the spiritual rule over the physical and to worship God as his highest, greatest purpose. He lived it out by submitting to God, suffering and ultimately dying. When in the fight, he used the word of God skillfully prepared by prayer and fasting. We can do all of those same things through Christ who strengthens us. One verse left, verse 11, where we see him put to flight the God of this world. After the victory, there was an after party. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. I'm just speculating, but maybe the angels and the demons had box seats to this single combat. Why not? We sometimes forget there are angels all around who most definitely see into the human realm. And this is set up as a combat between two champions and you'd expect their two armies to be watching. This is a struggle of cosmic proportions that uh, defies anything that had ever happened before. I think this was witnessed by multitudes of the heavenly host as well as the fallen angels said to be under Satan's authority. Jesus' corner help came and ministered to him. We're not told the extent of their ministry, so we just leave it at that. Jesus put the devil to flight. He had won, but the war was far from over. Every step of his ministry, the Lord would confront the kingdom of darkness. Demon-possessed individuals, he would cast out the devils. Diseases that are attributed to the devil. Now, when we get there, we'll talk about, you know, everybody wants to say, oh, well, you know, we don't want to attribute disease to the devil. That's an old-fashioned idea. And, and I understand that, and we'll talk about that. But in the Gospels, there were a lot of diseases that were attributed to the devil at that time because this was a warfare between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus released men who were taken captive by the devil to do his will. Uh, he beat the devil in the wilderness, he plants his flag and says the kingdom of heaven is here, and everywhere he went he proved it by destroying the works of the devil. Eventually the devil would incite men to betray, to arrest, to convict, and to crucify Jesus Christ. He gloated. The demons celebrated. Little did they know, twisted as they are in their logic, that it would mark the final once for all end of the devil's reign when three days later the Lord was alive forevermore, risen from the dead, still a man, but now the rightful sovereign over the universe. Is it mind-boggling to you that Jesus said, this is what I'm going to do, and then he did it, and the devil didn't understand what he was talking about? He said, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be put in the grave, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead, and the devil said, let's crucify him then. Let's kill him. Sometimes you just can't figure things out if you're blinded to spiritual things. Jesus defeated the devil and he defeated him finally at the cross. Soon, very soon, a scene from the book of Revelation will play out. It says in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Jesus is the sovereign Lord over the universe right now. He's won that right to rule, but he's not exercising the right to rule. He's in heaven the right hand of the Father, poised and ready to return. And one of the themes of the great tribulation 
is a warfare in heaven and on earth by which the Lord returns and defeats the devil finally and ultimately first at the end of the tribulation, then at the end of the millennium, and then it's done for sure. Jesus won the war, but the battle rages on. That's why we like to describe it as living between D-Day and V-Day. On D-Day, when they hit the beaches of Normandy, the war was over. It was just a matter of time before Germany and then Japan would surrender, World War II. But a lot of people fought during that period of time, almost a year. A lot of people died before you get to Victory Day and VE Day over Japan. And that's the period we live in, the church age, when the devil is still on the prowl, still on the loose, where we have victory over him, but he still is doing what he used to do, tempting and destroying and robbing and killing. He fights on, tempting you. Draw your strength from the Lord. Use the spiritual weapons available to you. Forget any carnal weapons. Forget the things of the world. Prayer, fasting, the word of God. These are the weapons of your warfare. The whole armor of God. They are powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. They affect individuals, they affect nations. Put simply, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let's pray.